You know, when we've been talking lately about being equipped, the, there is no way to be equipped apart from God's Word, not for being a Christian who's growing into becoming the full measure of Christ. And so what we're doing here today is really important in the context of being equipped, and of like helping ourselves come to a better understanding of the Word of God, helping ourselves to be able to handle the Word of God better. There are several of you in here that I know you've been in the Word of God, and I know you know how to handle it. But this is a great tool as you're discipling a younger Christian. That might be why you're here. You know, really not so much about yourself, but for you being able to have something in your hand to take a younger Christian and walking them through, helping them to understand how to use the Bible for themselves. Our speaker today is Matt Rogers. I know that some of you have already purchased the book, Rob, and some of you have already read the book and, and all. And Matt is the pastor at the church at Cherrydale. Uh, Matt is from Greenville, South Carolina. Now, and some of you have said, do I need the book to go through the class today? No, you don't. You don't need the book to go through the class today, but you might want the book if you want to continue working this methodology and continue learning how to use it, maybe if you're, if you're discipling someone else. Please, if you want to pick up the book, there'll be somebody over here at the resource table to make that available to you, all right? Now, I'm not going to introduce Matt anymore because that's I said everything I know about him, really, so I'm going to let him do the rest of the introduction himself, all right? Perfect. So y'all, wel- y'all welcome Matt up at the table, all right? <clears throat> Well, good morning. How's everybody? So I tried to tone down my southern accent this morning. I was practicing. I still don't know what a hoagie is. It's a sub. Uh, we had this conversation last night, uh, but whatever a hoagie is, it is available for lunch if you would like it. Um, man, it is, it is always an honor to stand before uh, another church. As a first and foremost, a pastor of a local church, I know the uh, fear or uh, care that I give to who I give a microphone to stand in front of uh, the people that God has called me to shepherd and for whom I will give an account one day. And uh, so to the the pastors and leaders here, thank you for uh, inviting me to to be a part. It really is an honor to be with you uh, this morning. I'll kind of validate what we're going to do today with uh, one quote from Scripture and then one quote from a modern theologian. Jesus in John chapter 17 prays for the disciples saying this, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So simple prayer to the Father that God would sanctify, purify, protect, if you know the nature of this prayer, that he would protect the people, and then the means by which this protection would happen would be God's word to his people. And then from a modern theologian, Walter Kaiser, he writes this, Christ is the foundation of the church, and the church is the guardian of Scripture, When the church is strong and healthy, the light of Scripture shines bright. When the church is sick, Scripture is corroded by neglect. And thus it happens that the outward form of Scripture and that of the church usually seem to exhibit simultaneously either health or sickness. And as a rule, the way in which Scripture is treated is an exact correspondence to the health of the church. So if we were to say that more succinctly, Kaiser argues that you can measure the health of a local church body 
by the gravity with which it responds to, treats God's Word. And I would actually take that one step further and say it is almost a universal law that you can tell the health of an individual disciple of Jesus by the way in which they engage with God's Word. It is most common to see a one-to-one correspondence to daily active engagement with the Scriptures and maturation in the same way it is to notice someone drifting from the Lord by what they do with their Bibles each day. And so this morning I was introduced as an old young guy. I don't know what that means, um, but I think it means I'm kind of in the middle. I just turned 40 uh, a few weeks ago, actually. So I'm far from an expert on this subject, uh, but I do want to commend to you once again active, intentional reading of God's Word, and as we talk together this morning, some tools to help you grow in your fervor and application of the Scriptures. For me, I uh, never set out to be an author. In fact, I did not set out to do much of anything uh, with my life, but the Lord has seen fit to place me in leadership in the church and give me a mantle of responsibility and the ability to write some books that others have found helpful. The reality of the seven arrows, I'm a pretty terrible book salesman uh, because this was, uh, this was not my intention and I certainly did not want to develop a method. In fact, I'll admit I'm uh, a bit reticent of methods and tools, uh, but I was, uh, we started the church nine years ago in Greenville and through the discipleship of the church, uh, people would come to faith, and I was meeting with a young man, uh, Garrett Stewart, I still remember. Uh, we were meeting at IHOP. Do you have IHOPs? Is this, uh, okay, it's the best place to do discipleship, right? It was, it was great. So we met at IHOP every morning, uh, or once a week in the, in the mornings to talk about God's Word, and uh, Garrett had come to faith, and we had baptized him and given him a Bible, and I was walking him through the book of Romans. And as a new believer who was growing and desire for the scriptures, he came loaded with questions. And if you're a new believer and you're starting with the book of Romans, it's going to produce a few questions, right? It's not exactly the easiest topic to tackle out of the gates. So Garrett came with his list of questions and he had been actively reading the scriptures and he was terribly confused right? Just all across the map trying to figure this thing out. And so I left a bit flustered with how do I help this young man learn to read the Bible well? Uh, the best thing I had up to that point was, uh, was a tool. I'm going to use this because I stink at PowerPoint or ProProjector or whatever, uh, so I don't have slides to correspond. So I'm going to doodle Uh, on the whiteboard, and I'm going to commend to you just taking some notes as we go, and then I can share this with your pastors, um, all of what we do today. So if you want to grab a quote or an idea, you're welcome to do that. Uh, But the best tool I had at that point was an acronym, which again, uh, I admit I don't like acronyms. Uh, They just feel silly to me. But uh, the acronym was SOAP, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. So this was the method by which you were supposed to uh, disciple new or young believers to engage with the Bible. Give them a passage of Scripture, ask them to read that passage and make observations on the text. 
then based on those observations, to make application to their lives and then use that application to prompt them to pray. Well, I liked this tool. It was helpful for me. But I found as Garrett attempted to use the SOAP method to study the Bible, uh, he got incredibly lost here. He didn't really know what he was looking for. So his observations were all across the map, and by virtue of the fact that his observations were all across the map, it was really hard for him to make realistic application or correct application to his life. So I set my pickup after a frustrating discipleship appointment and doodled on a dinner napkin the way I think I study the Bible. And uh, that was some arrows that helped me frame what I do in the mornings when I sit down with a cup of coffee and I open God's Word. And those arrows morphed over time to become a tool that has morphed into a book and various other things. So that's kind of how we got to this moment. Again, never setting out to develop a method. But as a dad with four young kids in the home and one on the way, my wife's due with our fifth in two months now. Uh, And I learned last night that uh, this is a a classical conversations uh, spot. We do CC as well. Uh, in our home, and I have, uh, I have learned the memorization technique of setting things to music. Right? I mean, the, the history timeline. I, I think I can recite the history of the world now. I mean, it takes like 36 minutes to do it, but I've memorized the song, right? And it helps truth stick in my mind. Well, as adults, we don't outgrow that, right? We don't outgrow the stickiness of simple tools that help us engage with really big ideas and then help us communicate those ideas to others. So what I'm commending to you during our study together isn't specifically a method. Methods fall flat. You might think of the method as hoisting the sails on a sailboat. We're we're simply going to raise some sails and trust that nothing happens apart from God's Spirit blowing in those sails. So methods are always going to fall flat, but they're, they're helpful for us as Bible students, and as those who are going to disciple others. As we transition to uh, some talking points this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you would open it to 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. We'll read together various places of the Scriptures, and then I'm going to actually ask you to circle up with some people that you're sitting around and practice some of these tools together this morning. 2 Kings 22, and just by virtue of turning here in your Bibles, you have a sense of where we are in the story of redemptive history, being the latter part of these historical books of the Old Testament. We know that we're tracing the cycle of sin as the people continue to rebel from God, face his judgment, then God shows mercy, the people repent and return But at each time, it seems that things devolve. Things are spiraling out of control for the people of God. They're being judged, going to be exiled from the land. 2 Kings 22, we pick up in one of these stages of reform that God brings before the people. And we meet, in verse 8, the high priest who tells the court secretary. And this is a fascinating phrase here, verse 8 of chapter 22. I've found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Now, that should be enough to give us pause, right? 
Here's the high priest who's going to the court secretary and saying, I found God's word in the temple. Which forces a question, doesn't it? How did the people lose God's word? You would think of all the things that would be kept and retained, it would be the Holy Scriptures, God's voice, but the people have lost God's word in the house of God. And so he brings the word of God to the high priest, and what happens, you may be familiar with this scene, they read God's word and they're stunned by their sin. We've got to repent and return to the Lord. We can't believe what's written in this law. So how do the people of God lose the word of God and then become complicit in sin? Well, sadly, this is not simply true for the Old Testament people of God, is it? It can be true for our churches today and for our lives individually, that the word of God can be neglected by the very people of God in the house of God. And as a result, sin, intentionally or unintentionally, is the necessary outcome. And we can awaken one day and say, how did I miss that? So let me suggest some current realities as we get going with the study of Scripture. What is, um, there we go, racer. What is the current reality of our individual engagement or our cultural engagement with God's Word? To what might we attribute a neglect Number one, let me suggest spiritual laziness. Spiritual laziness. Nothing can make up for this reality. Coming to a seminar on a Saturday, taking notes, is not going to make up for sinful apathy on the parts of God's people. There is no method that I can commend to you that can overcome a work that only God can do by virtue of his spirit in your hearts. This is clear in all areas of spiritual maturity. We can't method our way out of neglect. And that's why the things that we did to start with this morning is to pray that God would incite in us an urgency to engage with his word. Because apart from that, we might as well stop the seminar right here. So even as we're talking, let me, let me ask you, to, God, you, by virtue of your spirits and dwelling presence in my life, would you enliven my heart to love your word, as the psalmist does? Two, and I won't try to write uh, all of these out because I'll misspell words and you will laugh at me, uh, but uh, HD is going to stand for heightened distractions. Heightened distractions. So what's the reality of spiritual neglect of the word of God in our day? heightened distractions. It seems that in a day where everyone can say something, less is often said. And when we can access anything from everywhere, less wisdom is actually acquired. Uh, There is no question in my mind as a pastor of a local church that the advent of modern technology while being a clear fuel for our engagement to resources that our predecessors would have given anything to tap into, actually probably contributes more to spiritual neglect than it does fuel our engagement with God's Word. 
There is no doubt that social media and text messaging and access to all that on the device that perhaps, I don't know your congregation at all, I'll speak for my congregation, the device that many of my congregation uses to actually read the Bible, you know? They're kind of thumbing their way through the Bible itself. And as they're doing, they're being buzzed by all sorts of other things that are vying for their attention. Friends, we are just not mature enough, none of us, to weed through all those voices and discern rightly the primary voice consistently. I'm I'm not there. You're not there. So technology distractions contributes to neglect. Thirdly, I think either active or passive uh, postmodern drift The question is, is there really meaning in the text that I can discern? Does the Bible say anything that's capital T truth? Or is this all left up to me to figure out? Fourth, I would suggest a head-heart distinction that is unhelpful. The heart, just give me Jesus All that matters is loving God or the head. Let me slice everything as thin as I can slice it and intellectually engage with God on the basis of my mind. And based on your individual wiring and the culture that's created in your church, most places drift one way or the other. Engagement with God becomes an academic exercise where we attempt, like a middle school boy, flexing muscles into a mirror that doesn't care, and muscles that he doesn't have, we attempt to flex our theological muscles to one another with our head, or we flatten that and say, thinking about God doesn't matter. Well, it it does. Both matter, and unnecessarily separating those two leads to a lot of problems. Fifthly, the drift towards church pragmatism. Uh, I don't know your pastors, but in spending 24 hours with them and by virtue of them engaging with this tool, uh, you are richly blessed in that you are a part of a church that has a high view of Scripture and believes that most important for you on Sunday is not to be entertained by a good show, but to hear from God. Uh, Unfortunately, this is not true broadly in our culture. And the drift towards church pragmatism, what works, what connects people to our thing, versus how do we speak authoritatively and say things that are perhaps hard and would lead people away, contributes to this. And then sixthly, um, pride. The pride that causes us to say, I don't have any more to learn. This is too simple for me. Or the pride that Paul is going to lament puffs us up. The chasm between thoughtful Christians and perhaps the common church attendees that creates the, the tension of those who are trying to love God well with their minds by engaging the scriptures. And friends, I don't know what's true in your world, but that doesn't often wear well on people in my environment. And what I mean by that is it does exactly what Paul suggests. Knowledge puffs up, and the more people study the scriptures, 
the more difficult they are to engage with, the, more, the less approachable they actually are. What I kind of jokingly, I mean, the smarty pants syndrome, right? Nobody wants to be close to the person that always tells them everything they saw was wrong, right? Nobody wants to be around the person that's always trying to slice it thinner than the next guy. And if our effort in the church is meant to make disciples of all nations until Jesus returns, then what we should see is a corresponding growth in godliness from engaging the scriptures modeled in an approachability and a love for people who don't have it all figured out. And friends, that's the height of virtue. Someone who can think deeply about the truths of scripture, but make them applicable to the common man and woman that's just engaging with the Bible for the very first time. So you probably have heard it said or drawn. Some bright person said it. I don't know who to quote, but there are two kinds of simplicity. Picture this is a mountain. Okay, really clear drawing. You can tell I'm a parent of young kids. This is the mountain of complexity. We recognize that we're reading God's word. It's complex. It's difficult. Even the writers of Scripture are going to speak about other writers of Scripture and say, that dude's really complex. I have no clue what he's saying most of the time, right? So we've got a complex word from God. There are two types of simplicity. There's simplicity on the short side of complexity, and this is just laziness. This is people who don't care enough to engage with the Bible. They don't care enough to study. They don't care enough to think deeply about the things of the Lord. But then there's simplicity on the far side of complexity. This is actually the fount of wisdom. People who can go up the mountain of complexity, engage God's scriptures deeply, but come down on the other side to be actual real people that are approachable and helpful for God's mission of multiplying disciples to the glory of God. That's what we're after today, is simplicity on the far side of complexity that cares about God's word, that wants to think deeply about it, but does so in a means of applying it to the mission that God has put before us. Now, as we think about the arrows this morning and consider those before we take a break, let me me suggest, and I did this in the book. Uh, Honestly, the book was an afterthought. Um, We developed the arrows using it on a dinner napkin uh, and, and trying to disciple some people. And then I just said, hey, here's a little tool that I'm using. You ought to use this when you're discipling somebody. And that started something moving. Uh, Over time, we began to use it in our small groups in the church. And so uh, what I would find, we did sermon-based discussion in our small groups so that groups would kind of discuss the passage that was being preached on a Sunday. And I would find that the groups would spend more time discussing my sermon than they did discussing the Bible. I was like, man, I really want to equip my people Uh, to meet with God on Monday morning at six o'clock and not have to depend on me to mediate God's word for them. Uh, They've got the spirit dwelling within them. They can meet with God where they are. So we began to use the arrows to guide our small group conversation. Uh, And and that, again, grew a life of its own, became helpful. Donnie and I, Donnie's a pastor uh, at the church with me, and we said, hey, let's write a book that helps kind of illuminate the path that the arrows set out to help those who are trying to disciple others build some skills around them that can use these arrows meaningfully. And so the way we cast it in the book is think about each arrow. You know, if you think about it simply, each arrow has a starting point. 
And this starting point is a couple of theological affirmations about God's word that if we miss, the, the arrows lose their directionality, okay? We, we, we don't get anything out of them. So four dots that drive each of these arrows. Dot number one is the reality that God has made himself known through his word. God has made himself known through his word. This is true from the dawn of creation. The God who created all things speaks into creation, revealing himself to his created image bearers. One of the brothers or sisters who prayed this morning actually voiced this in their prayer. Calvin speaks of God speaking baby language to people. I like that picture right? as a dad of four about to be five. I know how weird you get when you get around a two-year-old, right? I was doing it last night on a FaceTime call with my daughter, and you just start talking in gibberish, and it's cutesy, and you're getting up in the screen. She's trying to give me a kiss through the screen. She can't do it, and I become a totally different person because I want to stoop to her level and speak in a way that she can access. Calvin says that's what God did in revealing himself through his word. He could have lived in lofty separation, but yet he chose to make himself known, which positions our heart correctly to come at the Bible, which is to say that this that we hold in our hands is a grace gift from a good God. And when we start to lose that, neglect is a necessary outcome, right? When we forget, I am holding in my lap this morning the revelation of the supreme God of the universe who spoke all things into existence. And he loved me and cared for me enough to make himself known through his word in a way that I can read it and understand it. What a gift of God. What a gift of God to think, too, that you are born at a time and place when you can read a Bible in your own language and probably own about seven of them. And this morning, with a click of your thumb, download an app that's going to put it in multiple translations so you can consider various versions. What a grace gift from a God. How foolish would we be to put that gift on the shelf? I mocked my son before I left town yesterday because he comes downstairs and says, Dad, I have, he's eight, Dad, I have nothing to do. Like, son, we're like three, four weeks from Christmas. You remember the things that grandparents gave you that are just laying in your room that you were begging for like three weeks ago? You got BB guns and targets and you've got so much. What in the world are you complaining about? And in a very similar way, God has given us so much by which we can access him through in his word. A second affirmation of the arrows is that everyone, you, me, all all of us, are theologians. There is no such thing as just a simple believer. Okay, I'm kind of using that in air quotes. Anytime, think about the word theology, what we're talking about there. We're just simply talking about the study of God. And so while you may not consider yourself an ivory tower theologian, You might not have German scholars on your shelves at home. might not access the Bible through the original languages. Anytime you think about God or speak about God, you're doing theology. 
So in your small groups, when you're sitting around the living room and you're discussing God and his work in your life, you are being a theologian. Now, not in the academic purebred sense, but you are studying God and bringing his word to bear on the lives of other people. And friends, I, I don't know about you, but that, that's scary, right? To think that God has entrusted his word to his people such that I am speaking on God's behalf to those that he has put in my life. If I'm going to do theology, which I would say all of you are doing, then it makes sense to want to do it well, right? It would make sense if I'm going to speak on God's behalf in a small group environment that I'd kind of want to say what God wants to say in that situation and not just what pops in my head. So I want to handle the scriptures well, recognizing that I'm a theologian. Thirdly, and this is critical, third dot that drives the arrows. There is meaning in the Bible, and that meaning is discernible. There's meaning in the Bible, and that meaning is discernible. What that means is that the common question, and I'm guilty of this in, in group study as well, the common question, what did that passage mean to you, is probably not the best question. Because what that does is it necessarily takes the authority of the Bible and places it in your lap. And what I'm suggesting with this third affirmation is that it is not as much what the Bible means to you that matters but rather what the text meant to God as he, through his spirit, empowered these writers to communicate authoritative truth to us. So my work is to figure out why did God speak this word and what does he want me to discern from it? And then apply it to my life in a right fashion, which is often what we think we're saying when we say, what does the Bible mean to you, brother? What we're actually asking is more, how does this text apply to you? That's a good question. But we want to make sure that we start with, there's something true from God's word that he wanted to bring to bear from this passage. And then fourthly, all scripture is profitable and useful. All scripture is profitable and useful. Which immediately kind of forces your hand as a Bible reader, right? She's like, but, but it, a lot of it's weird, right? I mean, a lot of it's still in these like sticky pages of my Bible. That's what we talk about. In our, you know, when you originally buy the Bible and all the pages are stuck together, and then like five years later, some of Leviticus is still stuck together because you've actually kind of tapped out of that section. You're like, I don't really know what to do with these chapters. Some of it, Paul's letters, the Gospels, perhaps we're like, all right, I pulled that one apart really quickly. I understand how that's profitable and useful. But what we'd say is if God did, didn't waste words, right? I mean, he clearly purposed this as his authoritative message to you, which demands the question, then it's up to me to discern how is all of this useful and profitable for my sanctification. We would consider the Bible at a glance to be a fascinating book. Forty authors, 66 books written over thousands of years. 
divided and subdivided, helped by chapter and verse divisions by more modern editors? How do we approach such a massive book that God says is all profitable for my sanctification and my walk with Christ? Well, I'll tell you the culture in which I grew up in. It was Bible as dictionary. Got a problem? Go to the back of the Bible and find that topic and all the verses that speak to that topic. Struggling with anxiety? Flip to the back, find verses on worry, read those, put them on a little index card on your mirror, commend them to memory, and move on. Well, that works really well with some issues that are perhaps easier to find, like issues like worry, that we can find verses, Jesus speaking to this topic. But it did a terrible job of training me to understand this book as a whole. It didn't help me see how all of this was profitable and useful, because friends, there aren't many issues in my life that I face that going to Leviticus is a natural and clear connection to, right? It's really hard to apply that rhythm to books like the historical narratives, like 2 Kings, what do I do with those? Well, apart from God's saving activity in my life, perhaps the biggest transition was when people began to communicate to me, or perhaps when I first heard, ideas of the Bible as one big story. Maybe you say like a meta-narrative, like a big tale. Little stories that are fitting into one big story. The Bible as a unified whole, describing God's work to save sinners and fix the world. Okay. So maybe approaching this book less as dictionary and more the way I would a normal story that is telling me about God's work through Jesus Christ to save sinners like me and put the world back together again would help frame how I would think about the Bible. This seems to be what Jesus does when speaking of the Scriptures. When on the road to Emmaus, a very famous passage, Jesus says that all the law and the prophets point to him. The book of Hebrews does this time and time again. It'll hold up one theme of the Old Testament and say, Jesus is better than that. Priesthood, Jesus is better. Sacrifice, Jesus is better. Melchizedek, you don't even know who that guy is. Jesus is better, right? He's going to point to all these Old Testament themes and connect them through Jesus Christ. Well, for me, this shifted the way that I engaged with the scriptures, and it helped me in a host of ways. Seeing the Bible as a unified whole gave clarity to my understanding of Scripture. That I was developing the skill of saying, how is this helping me understand Jesus and his work to save me and put the world back together again? It gave me a sense of purpose in my engagement with the Scriptures. I was attempting to more sequentially read and ask the question, how is Jesus on display in this passage? How does this make sense as a piece of a broader story? And it helped me in my training work as I was discipling other people to engage with the Bible. I started to shift my attention to say, I want to help people Read the Bible as a big story. And how can I help them do that well? Well, that's the purpose for our time this morning, is to help you do that well, 
to engage with the Bible in a way that points to Christ. And so what let's do a uh, seven-minute stretch break, leg break, uh, hug a neighbor break, coffee refill break, bathroom break, anything else, pastors, leaders, that we need to direct people to do? Steve, anything that I need? Okay, so let's do that. We'll be back at 11, and we're going to get rolling with arrow one.